yeah, everything that's happening in society and in the environment is driving this big wave of capital investment. And if you look back over the last few years globally, it's been around six, six and a half trillion dollars annually of new capital investment. We see that going up to eight or nine trillion dollars per year over the next few years, again, to build the infrastructure that we need to support the demographic shifts and the and the energy transition. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name's Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. This week, we welcome David Rockhill, partner at McKinsey, who works with organizations across the full construction and infrastructure value chain. We dive into the changing global shifts and the wave of new capital infrastructure as a result, the need to scale both infrastructure development and sustainable materials development, Western society's ability to compete with global manufacturing powerhouses like China, industry readiness, and lots more. One quick point before I pass over to David. For may I ask a favor, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome David. Hey, Jack. Good to see you. So first of all, thanks a lot for, for having me on today. My name is David Rockhill. I'm a partner at McKinsey & Company, which is a global management consultancy. And first and foremost, I'm a civil engineer. So I started my career about 20 years ago, working in the construction industry, mainly in commercial real estate, but also some social infrastructure. So I worked on some of the kind of building schools for the future projects and various hospital projects and, and, and real estate projects. And then made the transition across to consulting a few years back. And now at McKinsey, I lead our work in engineering, construction and building materials. And that means I spend all of my time in and around the built environment. So that's working across the whole value chain. So working with everyone from investors in infrastructure through the supply chains, the engineers, construction companies, building material companies, distributors who serve the industry, and also the owner operators who, who, who actually own, run, operate, maintain some of the infrastructure we have, we have globally. And my kind of real passion, I guess, is around helping to transform and improve the industry. So I work a lot with technology companies and software companies and modular players who are, again, looking at finding ways to make the industry more productive and, and more effective. So but very pleased to be with you here today, Jack, and to talk about a, a topic I'm very passionate about. Thanks so much. I'm so glad you're here. Me and you both dedicate our lives to to built environment, to change in industry and some of the, some of the hurdles and challenges that come with it. We're in a bit of a an interesting time when it comes to the built environment and infrastructure market in general. There's so many different pressures. And I, I guess I want to start off thinking about the energy market, which is something that's at the front of a lot of people's minds in the, in the industry when it comes to the energy transition and some of the accelerants and challenges that come with this transition. Seeing challenges in the market at the minute with the UK being described as a bit of a laggard when it comes to the energy transition quotes of hands-off approach, et cetera. But what are you seeing at the minute? Where, How well do you think we're doing? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, and, and maybe to to step back and take a bit of a, a global view, you know, over the next few years, we're facing a wave of capital investment that we probably haven't seen for a generation, right? So this is to fund the energy transition. It's to fund some of the infrastructure investments we're going to need to replace aging transport infrastructure, to support demographic shifts, you know, people are people are moving more, more and more globally, not least driven by driven by climate change, and also to support everything that's happening around technology. So, 
I think there's a always a big focus on software and applications of technology behind that. So it's a huge amount of capital investment when it comes to data centers, networks, and uh, and so forth. So yeah, everything that's happening in society at the moment and in the environment is driving this big wave of capital investment. And if you look back over the last few years globally, it's been around six six and a half trillion dollars annually of new capital investment. We see that going up to eight or nine trillion dollars per year over the next few years. Again, to build the infrastructure that we need to support the demographic shifts and the and the energy transition. And, and to give just a couple of examples, right? there's, there's many parts to this. You know, there's energy generation, there's transition and distribution networks, there's retrofits of domestic and commercial properties. But you know, one of the big topics is hydrogen at the moment, and we were just chatting about it before. But yeah, if you look at the hydrogen growth forecasts, we're looking at an increase of seven to eight times hydrogen production by 2050. In the UK, it could be something like 30, 35% of all um, energy consumption in the UK by 2050. So everywhere you look, there's a huge need for massive capital investment to support this transition that that is very necessary now. And the change that I've observed in the last few years, and I think many, many will have observed, is that you know, there's very little debate about the need for energy transition now, whereas there was a few years back. So it's it's become the accepted wisdom. And so you therefore have political will behind it. But you've really, in the last year, two or three years, seen a real acceleration, you know, not least driven by what we've seen with energy prices, you know, increased concerns around energy security. So you're really seeing an acceleration of, of what was already quite strong you know, drivers towards the energy transition and the, and the associated capital investment. And naturally, one of the key building blocks to an energy transition is securing suitable materials and sustainable materials. We know that steel and concrete make up about 14% of global CO2 emissions, mm-hmm. which is quite a, quite a prominent figure. What do you think we can do with the, the hard to abate sectors? Yeah, no, it's a, a good question. So I think, of course, there's two elements to this. One is building the infrastructure that is going to support the energy transition. So like, whether that's the wind farms, solar farms, the hydrogen processing plants, the battery factories. And the second dimension is, well, we need to build those things in a green way as well, like you say, right? And exactly as you say, the building environment's responsible for something like 40% of global emissions. But there, there are technologies, you know, starting to starting to emerge, actually starting to scale as well. So whether that's green steel, you know, using electric arc furnaces powered by renewables to, to recycle steel, which you see, you're starting to see more and more of in, in rebar, for example, in concrete. You're seeing advances in insulation materials and thermal performance of, of materials, which improves performance in operation, seeing increased proportions of recycled materials in concrete. So I think we're I think we're making progress. I think when we speak to the companies that are trying to scale this technologies, these technologies, that that is exactly the question. How do you rapidly scale it, particularly with a product that's been developed and cost optimized over years and years and years? But, but from what we see, there is if you take the investor view, there's enormous amounts of private capital that is looking for investments in ESG responsible, if you like, types of investments. So the capital is there, the technology is emerging. The, the challenge now is to bring it together to really scale this technology and, and drive adoption very fast. But you know, as, as you'll know very well, you know, this industry is it's been around a while. It can be a little bit slow moving. And rightly so in some places, right? Because we're often working, very often working in very safe, critical environments. So it's important that things are tested and things work. But it also means that change can be slow sometimes. And that point around safety is quite an important one because if you look at the the growth of electric vehicles and battery-based 
products. One of the key components to that is, is lithium, it's copper, et cetera, which then naturally raises some challenges around where it's been sourced from and some of the challenges that are associated with mining and manufacturing. And I guess thinking about that dependency on concentrated areas for manufacturing, if you look at solar panels, 80% of components required for solar panels manufactured in China, which really raises challenges around the global concentration of this very critical capability that the world needs. Yeah. How do you think the, the Western society can compete on a cost basis when China is so strong from a manufacturing perspective? So I, I think it's kind of, it's a great question. And I think it's not necessarily a question of competing on a kind of dollar for dollar basis, because you know, what we've seen you know, since COVID and you know, various other shocks we've seen over the last few years is just this shift in in the mindset from absolute, you know, leaned out supply chains and lowest costs to more of a focus on resilience. And you know, when I speak to clients, resilience is one of the topics that is top of mind. And companies are now starting to value that more than they were in the past, I would say. And if you take China as an example, most of the big, you know, folks who are working with China at the moment are looking at you know, what you call a China plus one strategy. So yes, we're still sourcing heavily from China, but what are the other two or three locations that we're also sourcing from? You look at what the US is doing, for example, with the CHIPS Act, where they're trying to onshore a lot more of their, not only the manufacturing capability, but the the know-how when it comes to to semicon fabrication so i think it's it, it, like I said, it's less a case of you know finding a location that needs to be equally low cost and equally leaned out if you like yes you need to keep costs low but it's about actually increasing the value of resilience and and holding on to some of that ip and some of that know-how if that makes sense absolutely and resilience in our economy in our manufacturing process but also then in our environment and one of the big points at the minute is building in resilience into our water infrastructure network mm -hmm. and came out recently around figure of 56 billion needed to, to upgrade and improve the water infrastructure network to build in more resilience. And we then see in a rise of adaptation practices, such as nature-based solutions. Mm -hmm. we, we had Kelly Price, CEO of Agreed Earth on the podcast last week, which focuses on helping farmers adopt more sustainable land practices using satellite data, which was pretty interesting. But really keen for your thoughts around climate adaptation and how we can really build in more resilience into our environment and our infrastructure. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's a need that's becoming more acute. I mean, even in the last two or three years, you look at the rainfall figures, you look at you know, host pipe dams getting earlier and earlier in the year. And even if you look at, you know, where I live in London, there's increasing prevalence of of subsidence in houses and actually it becomes more expensive to get subsidence insurance because the London clay is drying out and the water levels are dropping and so forth. So, you know, I think whereas things like leakage were always obviously a very high priority for the water companies, it's becoming even more of an imperative and it's becoming a, a very personal issue for customers as well when they see the direct impacts on their lives. So, look, I think I think resilience is hugely important for our infrastructure, particularly in the face of, of what we're seeing with climate change. And not just about physical resilience, it's about being part of the solution as well. So if you look at the retrofit program we need to deliver in the UK over the next the next couple of decades, I mean, that in itself is a an enormous capital program. You know, you need to retrofit 20, 25 million homes over the next 10 years or so, several thousand homes a week, which is not a trivial exercise. And so 
yeah, for me, it's it, the question is how you then build and mobilize an industry around that challenge. And uh, I think, like, you know, like I say, I've I've been 20 years or so in the construction industry, and uh, it's an amazing industry in terms of you know the skills and the the capabilities that are within it. But it's also, as many people recognize, one that suffers with productivity, that suffers with waste, suffers with inefficiency. And the fact is, you know, to deliver a, as I mentioned right at the beginning, to deliver an trillion dollar annual wave of of capital investment, you know, to deliver that work on the ground, which is a you know nearly fifty percent increase in what we've seen in previous years, you need a construction industry that's that's productive, that's highly skilled, that's efficient. To me, that is almost the biggest challenge we have over the next few years. Right, the investment is there, the will is mostly there, both political and public. For me, it's now how do you get bankable projects delivered on the ground with an industry that is by an industry that has traditionally struggled with productivity at a time where vacancies are an all-time high and and we're suffering from a a kind of shortage of skilled labor globally in the construction industry. I think that's the kind of the puzzle we have to have to wrestle with. And the 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 point around industry readiness is such an important one. And I do want to touch on it, but I just want to go back to your point around the I guess the, the community engagement aspect of, of change, it's very easy for your national highways or your Balfour BTs or whoever else to adopt sustainable materials in their processes. Mm. But then it's then a whole another beast when you are introducing change to your everyday system. And fresh off the press, we saw the hydrogen village with Cadent scrapped because of community pushback. We're seeing challenges around the planning process for national grid because of the community engagement, community pushback elements. What do you think we can do around working with local communities to, to really help the social elements of infrastructure shine? Because I know that this is something quite close to your heart from your work back a few years ago. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good question. I think the kind of, yeah, the, the whole kind of license to operate, the social license to operate has become more and more prevalent in the last few years. And you look at some of the outcomes or, or delays to DCO processes, for example, for big infrastructure projects. You even look at things like, you know, to pick a random example, smart meter rollout, where as a country we've fallen behind our stated aspiration for smart meter rollout. And actually the barrier to that is people's willingness to open their front doors and have this thing installed in their in their properties if it, if it you know, comes down to it. And there's very yeah, a very complex kind of list of drivers behind that right so maybe people are unsure about the technology they're unsure about the cost they don't want you know work done on their house there's all kinds of different motivations and and, and blockers to getting work done that's at a micro scale right and you scale that up to a big new road project or a big new rail project and it's many times more complex yeah another another good example is is retrofit right so if you if you think about retrofit programs you, you generally need to get three things right to, to scale a retrofit program and some com- countries have done this relatively successfully or already you need to get the finance in place you need to make it financeable balancing the upfront cost with the you know operating and heating savings you get during the lifetime and make that make that affordable to people you need to get the supply chain in place you need to have the folks making the heat pumps and the insulation and installing it you get that set up and then the third thing is you need to get the customer demand right and actually get a process by which people are willing to, you know, have work done on their houses in their private homes and get it done in a period of time and actually have people open the doors and allow you in to come and do the work. And that is the most complex thing. You know, creating a 
you know, a series of incentives and value propositions for customers that actually make people want to do this. And no, I, I don't have the answer to this. And there is no easy answer. But if, yeah, from what we've seen, it's about that heavy customer engagement. So really at a local level, understanding what, what people's fears and motivations are, and then designing a series of incentives and a, a model that, that helps address those with the largest group of people as possible recognizing that you can't please all the people all of the time but um at the heart of it comes the kind of like very close customer engagement and community engagement to to understand why people would not accept this or make a change and it's also important to do this not just as a not just to pay lip service to this but to actually listen be seen to be listening and be seen to respond to what you hear in these in in this engagement and, and when you don't respond, explain why you're not, and that it's a deliberate action or a deliberate reason not to respond. That's a bit, a bit how I would see it. Absolutely. And in terms of delivering this change needed, do you think the industry is fit to deliver it? I think, I think at heart, yes, right? But it's always difficult for an industry or any organization, well, for an organization, let alone a whole industry, to transform itself, right? And I think that kind of everyone would be very familiar for years if not decades of some of the reasons some of the challenges we face as an industry right we have sustained low productivity we have still in many cases this kind of adversarial short-term cost-based contracting that's changing in some areas we've we've got this challenge around the kind of very fragmented value chain and supply chain so you have architects engineers planners contractors many different types of contractors owner operator on a typical project and then within each of those categories of expertise, you have consultants and subconsultants and subcontractors and many, many layers in the supply chain. And each of these, each of these interfaces results in some friction and some, and some productivity loss or some kind of waste. And then you reassemble that group of people for the next project and the next project. And it's usually a different group of organizations each time. And if you were to, it's, it's a bit of a hackneyed example to use the automotive industry, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. But if you imagine, you know, a large car company is just, you know, is producing tens of thousands of its latest model and it has the steering wheel OEM, it has the transmission OEM. You can tell I'm not an automotive guy, I'm using the wrong the wrong terms here, but you have a series of OEMs who you produce several several thousands of vehicles with and you get used to working each other and you have operating procedures and so forth. It's almost as if at the end of that model run, you then throw it all in the bin and bring together a total, totally different group of people who have never worked together before. And actually there's not you know, tens of OEMs, there's hundreds of OEMs all working in different places and communicating in different ways. And it, you see how quickly it becomes quite inefficient. But it's not easy to do, but that's a bit of the problem we need to start to start to solve as an industry. And you can see pockets where it's starting to happen. We ran a survey a couple of years or so ago, kind of calling out this challenge. And we asked kind of executives of global construction and engineering companies and owner operators how they saw the industry changing over the last, over the next 10 to 20 years. And 80% of them said they expect the industry to look fundamentally different 10 to 20 years from now, right? And 10 to 20 years feels like a long time. But if you look back at the construction industry at the start of the 2000s, it looks pretty much like it did today with fewer tablets and laptops. And so actually fundamental change in, in 10 to 20 years is pretty rapid. And, and the reason they say that is because they recognize that it, it, it needs to change. And your point around standardization in the car manufacturing sector is, I think, something that the construction industry, the infrastructure market is now very much trying to strive towards. We see a lot of the push towards modern methods of construction, trying to standardize design 
We don't need so many variations in design. And I think it's a really exciting challenge for, for engineering consultancies in actually asking themselves the question of, okay, we need to design this one particular part of a water treatment asset. How can we standardize that? How can we design maybe just one and one alternate variation? This then supports so much more efficiency in the, the production process. And I think we've seen pushes at a, an asset owner operator level, such as national highways to really strive towards standardization, design for manufacturing and assembly. I think we've also seen it work reasonably well in the, the nuclear sector at Hinkley Point C, supported by Langer Raw. Do you think that modern methods of construction is very much the answer to some of the industry challenges? I think it's one of the answers, yeah. And it's a difficult one because it's also been, particularly in residential, some challenges with MMC over the last couple of years and some high-profile companies stopping operation. But I think that the notion of standardizing and going for scale where it makes sense to reduce waste, to accelerate delivery, makes total sense and where it works very well indeed. And yeah, some of the examples you gave and some of the similar examples where you look at big infrastructure owner operators is where, where it can work very well. And the kind of features of those situations are that you have a kind of owner who buys into it and recognizes the need for it, and it needs to be pulled from the owner. They have a sufficiently large project or program where actually you can get a pipeline where it actually makes sense to scale up and manufacture a large volume of these, of these things. And you have a, and this is the important bit, you have the right relationship with the supply chain because you know, what you see often is this tension between, okay, look, we want to we want to standardize, we want to get volume, but we also want to keep competition, commercial tension in the supply chain. And you know, people sometimes assume that that means, okay, come up with a design and then tender it out to 20 different people and see if you can come back with the lowest cost. But actually, if you again, take the automotive example, and there you see, you might see a small group of OEMs, two or three, producing similar sets of components, and they might compete with each other on certain dimensions each year. But actually, they've got confidence they're going to get a certain volume to deliver of this. And they're in a partnership with the owners where they'll design it together and they'll commit to take two, three, five percent cost out each year. But you have this relationship with the owner operator where like, we want to develop this product together or this asset together. We want to win together. And so let's develop the design and let's optimize it together and optimize the whole end-to-end -end design to fabrication to installation process. But it needs to it needs to have the right relationship between the asset owner and the and the manufacturer or contracting organization. I think the other thing that that is sometimes ignored when we talk about MMC is standard, and you touched on it a little bit in your question actually, is your is the standardization of, of process and design and development process. And I think that's what's quite exciting. That I see is happening in engineering design at the moment, where I speak to engineering designers now and they talk about computational workflows and these kind of things, where actually they spend a lot of their effort standardizing a script that will allow you to design a facade panel or a flat slab and optimize it much faster rather than spending their time designing this one facade panel and then moving on to the next one and then someone else reinventing it and doing it the next time. I think that's the thing that excites me quite a lot about standardization when you think about engineering workflows. And I think the interesting, almost philosophical implication of that is it almost changes what it is to be an engineer, or particularly a civil and structural engineer. So when I started my career, I would design beams and slabs on spreadsheets and some finite element modeling. 
but actually now the brain work is about designing the computational scripts that will allow you to allow you to optimize 50 slabs or allow you and your colleagues to kind of get an extra 3% efficiency out of a particular particular beam and design something that can be replicated again and again. And the software that's out there now allows you to do that. And I think that is uh, that for me is a huge efficiency gain because there you, you're accelerating the design process in such a way that it allows you to run many more simulations and iterations of an optimized design. So you know, that that should allow you to get to the kind of either the optimized modular solution or a, a, yeah, the optimized building design or the footprint or the equipment layout because you can do many, many more iterations because the design process gets so much more, more accelerated. So I think there's a lot, to be, a lot to be optimistic about in what's happening in, in NMC at the moment. I absolutely agree with that. And with the, the investment level going into improving and digitally transforming capital design and delivery, it then really comes down to, okay, how can we ensure that we are asking ourselves the right questions? How can we ensure that we are defining the right requirements? And mm-hmm. there's, the, there's the phrase knocking around of, one pound spent in design is worth 10 pound in delivery. And there's the measure twice, cut once type mentality. And it really then comes down to, okay, going up the value chain to really get in the requirements piece right. And then you can then start working through the, the, almost the, the production process to leverage digital technology to accelerate the design and delivery of that new capital infrastructure. So I think there's so much opportunity ahead of us. And I guess also with the role of data, there's then opens up the opportunities around improving customer experience and stakeholders. Uh, one of the big themes at the minute in major capital infrastructure is around quantifying the social benefits beyond the asset level, which I know we touched briefly on earlier, but using data to quantify the value that infrastructure has beyond the, the assets. What are some of the key themes that you're most excited about when it comes to leveraging data to improve the the role of capital infrastructure in the in the So I think and there's a, a huge amount around the delivery of infrastructure. So look at the way that some companies are doing scheduling now and they'll use analytics to learn from previous project delivery to identify where the highest risk areas are and address those even in some cases before it before it happens. And uh simulate in real time how a project is going to fit together so in your example to avoid some of those kind of issues that actually you can foresee by simulating how an asset or a building is going to is going to fit together so and there's a lot on the on the delivery side on the operations side i think this is where you get to the really big impact so we've had leak detection and automatic dosing and all these kind of things in the water industry for quite a few few years now but anywhere you look on infrastructure, there are huge opportunities to optimize through through operations. So to pick, just to pick a random example, I was speaking to a technology company that does visual scanning of bridges and assesses, does crack mapping, like assesses crack width, very high precision. And so what would have previously relied on a visual inspection that may have been done every six months or three months, actually you can do much more frequently, right? And again, this sometimes the kind of, thinking with technology as well, we're automating human beings out of existence, but, but you're not, you're, you're doing, you're using the technology to do stuff that is the relatively low value add work, right? So actually you can then focus your engineering talent on the really tricky bridges or the really tough problems or identifying a solution that's going to, it can be implemented much faster or much more safely. 
but actually going to a construction site and taking photos of cracks is a pretty low value add activity. And that's, to, that's just a very micro example, but everywhere you look across the operation of infrastructure, there's huge opportunities through measuring energy consumption and continued optimizing performance of HVAC and heating systems and so forth. Yeah, we've talked about the water example. There's kind of, there's opportunities everywhere, everywhere you look. The challenge I think that many organizations have is how do we actually set ourselves up to capture that data, manage it, and actually how do we incorporate it into our workflows and get our people into the mindset that they have almost this new superpower of having access to data and how do they use it in, in, in kind of new workflows within the business. But I think that's the journey that many organizations are on at the moment. And this is a theme that a lot of my future engineering conversations come back down to. It's okay, we've got all of this new digitally enabled capabilities available to us, but it all comes down to people and ultimately it's making people's lives easier and working with people to be able to successfully adopt these opportunities for change. Yeah. David, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. Thanks and goodbye.